If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 47 with me. As I continue my look at the life of uh, Joseph, I'm going to read the first four, four verses. Yeah, four verses. And if I slur my words at all, it's because I probably haven't slept for about, I don't know, that first night of doozy, I tell you what. Okay, Genesis chapter 47, verse 1. And Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What is your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come. For thy servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll commit this time to him. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for this precious word that we can trust with our lives. We thank you that contained within it is the gospel message which leads us to your son for salvation. We thank you that its, its words open up our understanding and help us to understand who you are and what you would have us do. And this morning, that is my prayer, that you would open up the eyes of our understanding, that your spirit would work within our hearts to understand your truths and to help us to have the conviction to live those truths. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your work. We thank you for your ongoing grace and mercy. And we pray for more of that grace this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, as I've said, uh, reunions are fantastic things. Reunions are wonderful. This camp uh, was a reunion of about 100 young adults and some of those hadn't seen each other because they were coming from various churches from all over the place. Remember, if you haven't remembered, we, we were locked down for a couple of years, right? And they haven't seen each other, some of these guys, for three or four years. And so... I was watching when they were all coming in and, uh, and, and the registrations were taking place and people were getting to see each other. Just the joy in people's faces. They were hugging each other and, and, uh, and, and it, you know, there was plenty of smiles and plenty of laughs and, and all that sort of stuff and even some tears um, when they got together again and they were recalling and remembering other camps that they'd been involved with they, where they'd made friends at those camps and it was a blessing to see that. Reunion's a beautiful thing. When you get together with your family after a long time and after a long break, it's just beautiful to spend time together. And so there's a few reunions happening here as well. So um, good to see uh, Janina's parents uh, reunited after, uh, after a while. I know that Janina's father was having a problem with uh, his visa. It took, what, six months to get that visa? <laughs> uh, six months for Australia to say, okay, you can come in. And so Paul thing had to, had to wait over there in the Philippines. Is that right? Uh, before you come back. So um, your wife got a head start on you, but that's okay. You can catch up now and, and hold that beautiful baby and enjoy her. Getting together is a beautiful thing. And last week's sermon was about that. It was about the reunion of, more specifically, Joseph and his father. 
I mean, they hadn't seen each other for over 20 years, and now they had an opportunity to all move back. If you, if you recall, the, the famine was affecting Canaan pretty badly. And because Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers, they went back to their dad and they said, Dad, that's Joseph. Joseph is the guy who's ruling all of Egypt and he wants us to go there. And so when, uh, when uh, Jacob finally picked himself up from the ground, um, he said, yes, let's go. Let's do it. And so they organized themselves and they, they moved the whole family. And there were plenty of them. There were about 70 of them, roughly, with all their flocks and all their herds. And, and they, they packed up everything and they made this massive trip of about 400 kilometers from there to uh, Goshen, the land of Goshen, to Egypt. Because um, uh, Joseph had said, come here, I'll look after you because I'm the ruler of Egypt and you get, you'll get to stay in the best part of Egypt where there is the best land and the best uh, uh, the, the terrain for your animals. And so we have this reunion and, and Jacob, who's 130 years old, um, they gave him the royal wagon, if you remember. So jo uh, Pharaoh had sent these wagons down to Canaan in, in, in really in thanks to, uh, to Joseph and what he'd done for Egypt. And so the, the, the family got the royal uh, chauffeured uh, saloons coming back to Egypt, which would have been very nice. But they, the thing is that when they got together was when really the things were important because Joseph, when he hears that they're about to arrive in, you know, in Egypt, he wants to direct them where to go. And he, he, he takes off and he meets with them before they get to Goshen so he can show them. But when he sees his father after 20 years, um, it's, the scriptures tell us that he fell on his neck and he cried for a very, very long time. And I can, uh, I'm moved by that a lot. And I hope you are too, because that reunion shows how much love they had for each other. Joseph's father loved uh, sorry yeah jacob loved joseph so much um and having lost him you could you could see his heart had been broken for all that time but then to see him finally face to face was a um was an absolute blessing and so they were finally reunited together and joseph when he was with his with family again uh, everyone there together he gave them some instructions because he knew that when um, they had arrived, they would have to present themselves to Pharaoh. Pharaoh would want to know, well, who is it? Show me your family. I mean, I know you very well, but I don't know your family. I want you to show them, uh, bring them here, and I want to understand who are these people that you are bringing uh, to my land to stay. And so he advised them on what to tell Pharaoh, and he said, listen, when Pharaoh asks you what you do, because the first, job, the first question he's going to ask you is, what's your occupation? What do you do? Um, he goes, just tell them that you're shepherds. Because that's what they were. Don't go saying anything else. Just say we're shepherds and we've, we've got flocks. And the reason we've come here is because there's a drought there and we can't feed our flocks. And um, his desire was that they would be allowed to actually live in Goshen because Goshen was the best part of Egypt at that time to feed things like flocks and sheep, okay? Or flocks of sheep and herds, cattle. And so the interesting thing about that is that... Um, Shepherds and, and cattlemen were regarded with disdain in Egypt. They were not regarded very highly at all. In fact, the, the scriptures tell us in chapter 46 that they were abominations. So if you're a shepherd or if you were someone who looked after cattle, you were regarded as an abomination to the Egyptians 
who saw that as a very unclean type of thing. So if you recall uh, during previous uh, sermons that I've shared, that the Egyptians, especially the high-class Egyptians, the ones living in the cities, the ones who were connected, you know, it's, things don't change, right? Um, the ones who wore the better clothes, the ones who had the, the more expensive chariots, the ones who wore the, you know, the golden necklaces and, and jewellery, the ones who had you know, more of the power, um, they, saw, they looked at shepherds as something very low-class, uneducated or whatever. So Joseph knew that. And he was quite happy about that because it would mean that they lived separately to them and they wouldn't be influenced by all that glittery stuff. Um, and what he wanted simply was for his family to come across, to stay there while the famine persisted, and then eventually just to go back home, and which is what essentially happened. After meeting with his family, he leads the flocks he leads them and all their flocks and all their belongings to this special place. And so we have this chapter 47 now that begins with all right, him organising himself to go to Pharaoh and to present his family. And if you notice, he starts off by bringing just five brothers. He didn't bring everyone. He didn't bring all the kids along and all the wives and all the you know, second cousins like Italians would do, second and third cousins and everyone. No, no, he brings five brothers who will represent the entire family and his fathers. He starts off with his five brothers first. And they, they stand before Pharaoh. So you can imagine Pharaoh, the guy who holds the, you know, those, those things like this. And he's the ruler of all of Egypt, probably the most powerful man on the planet at that stage. And uh, they came and presented themselves to him, these humble uh, shepherds. And they explained to him, when he asked a question, what do you do? They said, we're shepherds. We've always been shepherds. Our fathers have been shepherds. And that's what we know. And we're here because we can't feed our flocks. Because there is no, there's not enough grass. There's not enough places or pastures for them to feed. And so specifically, what's interesting is the fourth verse. So if you look at the fourth verse there, it says, They said, moreover, so on top of that, uh, unto Pharaoh, for to sojourn the, in the land are we come. For thy servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now pay a particular attention to the first part of that verse, which says, They said moreover unto Pharaoh, for to sojourn in the land we come. We don't want to keep it. We don't want to... So they were saying to Pharaoh, essentially, we're not coming to settle and then possess the land. We don't want it. We're only here, and the person who's sojourning is a person who's passing through. They're there for a, for a time, and then they move on. They're not there to, to lay claim, or they're not there to, to, you know, to sink down their roots and, you know, and live there forever. They simply told Pharaoh, we are here just for a time. We're gonna, we're part, we just want to pass through and just stay here for, te for a temporary uh, measure so we can feed our flocks, and then we're going to move on out. And so Pharaoh was happy with that. He wasn't giving up any land. He didn't know what was going to you know, happen after that. And so I, in my last sermon, I drew a parallel between Joseph's family being brought into Goshen and being saved from the drought because of Joseph's faithfulness, because Joseph essentially opened that door for them. Joseph was the one who actually you know, was the, apart from Pharaoh, was the greatest man in, uh, in Egypt. And he led them, if you notice, he met with them and he led them to where they were supposed to go. 
He led them into places that had green pastures. And so he becomes this picture of Jesus, who actually saves a person and leads them to green pastures. And so they were disdained as shepherds. They were seen as lower class. And that's okay, because we may and are normally seen as people who are uneducated by the wise people of the world. And that's okay. But we are simply called to live peaceably and faithfully to the Lord. But what's interesting is that when you look at that as a picture of how Christ saves a person and leads them to green pastures, which is what he does for us now, um, when you put that together with the fact that they said, we're just sojourning, we're not here permanently, that's an important message for us too, because it, once again, it makes that picture even more important. We are not here permanently. Am I talking about that we live a, a, a temporary life? Well, that's part of it, I suppose, because we only live a certain amount of time and then we move on, literally. But the point I want to make here is that they said to thing, we're not here for a long period of time. We are not here to possess this land. This is not what's important to us. We know we've got a home back there. And we want to go back to that home eventually. And that's true for you and me. Is that we understand, importantly, that we are sojourners and pilgrims here. We are not meant to plant our roots deeply down into this earth because this earth will one day not be here. What we see around us is not going to last. The Bible says that it's all going to, be, all going to go away. It's all going to vanish. God's in fact going to create a new heaven and a new earth but that we should understand that we aren't in our, at, at home at all. And if we understand that and we have that at the back of our minds, we won't, we won't live like we are at home. Because when you're at home, <laughs> I love the camp, right? I love it. But I don't, I don't sleep very well in other beds. Especially a bed that's made of... What's that made of those beds? Like they got, they're covered in plastic or something, right? <laughs> oh. um, that's why I like glamping, not camping. Right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen to that, brother. Thank you. So, my point is that we're not meant to be comfortable. So, when I was at camp, I love camp. I have a fantastic fellowship time. We got to preach. We got to hear preaching. We were singing together. We are doing all this stuff. It was wonderful. Wonderful stuff. But I'll tell you what, when I got into my bed last night, <laughs> the next thing I realised I was awake in the morning. Like I didn't even, normally it takes me a little time to get to sleep, you know, and, and I have to sort of calm my brain down a little bit because it's thinking about a million things at the same time. But last night, I'll tell you what, I got back home, I got into bed and that was it, out like a light. And I didn't wake up during the night, I didn't know, I just knew this, the alarm went off in the morning. For those of you who can do that normally, God bless you, you are blessed. <laughs> the point is, when you're at home, you just relax. You just relax. Like, it's just like, you just you let yourself go. I was watching Brother Alan. Um, so I'm allowed to use you as an example? Yeah. Sure I am. <laughs> These guys were working in the kitchen. I was getting worried about them for a while because they were on their feet constantly. From the time they got there, they didn't take a break, pretty much. And so um, they're there working, making breakfast, and then breakfast is over, you had to clean up and get, you know, get the kitchen organised and get ready for lunch. And then when lunch is over, you had to organise yourself for dinner and then do... And then there was constant working, and there was normally three, and so I appreciate when Mara and David were there to help out because they, they really took a load off them as well. But you're constantly on your feet. And so the one opportunity I think they had to come and hear Chris Hustler preaching was towards the end. And... 
Alan the decided foolishly to to go and sit on the couch. Okay, so they had couches along the sides and they had normal chairs, like those plastic chairs in the middle. And Alan said, oh, that looks pretty good, that couch. I could see the look on his face. And he sat down in that couch and he sunk down, you know, lower and lower and lower. <laughs> and I'm watching him and I could see something was going on because I don't know if, it, if it's like this for you, but when, I've had, when, I'm, when I keep on moving, my body's in this particular mode. So it just keeps on moving. It's tired, it may be in pain or whatever, but the moment I sit on a couch and I start to sink down, it's something like my body says, okay, time to switch off now, and I'm out. So I could see Alan was there, enjoying the message, but really too comfortable for his own good. So I went and sat down next to him, you know what I mean? And it was, uh, it was good. So when you are comfortable, you tend to go to sleep. The problem we have as Christians sometimes is we get too comfortable in this world. It's way too comfortable. We, we, um, the Bible says that we are called to be you know, children of the light. Right? We're not called to live in darkness. The problem with, with us is that we fall asleep in the light. We're in the light, but then we fall asleep. So rather than doing God's work, and Jesus says, you know, work while it's day. And we have this day, and we have this opportunity, so it's important for us to understand that we're not here for a long time. Life doesn't last that long, and the opportunity we have as believers, as the children of God, is to shine God's light in this world. But if we get too comfortable, if all of our, if all of our attention and most of our focus is going on, oh, what job am I going to do, and how am I going to do that, and what am I going to do here, and what house am I going to buy, and, and a lot of those things you've got to do anyway just to live, right? But don't bog yourself down with too many things because we tend to burden ourselves with things we don't need in this world. You know, we, conv- we, get, we become convinced by other people in the world who say, oh, you need this to be happy. Or you need that to be happy. And if you haven't got one of those, you need to go and get that. And you know what happens. The more things you have, the, less, the more headaches you've got. And the more time you have to spend on those things to keep them going and to, and to do all that sort of stuff. So we fill our lives with all these different things and to keep ourselves busy and to keep, you know, to, to keep the career going and to keep that set. And then what we're doing is essentially falling asleep in the line. We might be busy, but not busy about God's stuff, the stuff that lasts forever. We are busy with the stuff that lasts just temporarily and we don't have anything to show when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that would be a shame. Because if God gives you a few good years of this life on this earth, and you are a born-again believer, and you have all of your eternity worked out, God is giving you all things. You have your home with him in heaven. You have There's no, no one that can take away what he's given you. You have, we are looking forward to seeing him, not just with each other, but with angels even, possibly. Um, and we mess around with stuff in the world. We are deluding ourselves and wasting this wonderful opportunity. And we only get one. You only get one life to live. And after this, the judgment. And you think, oh, we don't get judged as Christians. Oh, yeah, we do. We do. You know, the, the sin was judged through Christ. He carried our sin. He bore our sins. But I'll tell you what, God's given you certain things He's given you time. He's given you life. He's given us freedom in this country, which other countries don't enjoy. And the question is, what we do with it? Because in the end, 
God's going to say, I gave you all of this. I gave you these gifts. I gave these abilities. I gave you this freedom. I gave you all these things. Now show me what you have for me. And sadly, I think that many Christians and believers will say, Lord, I've got nothing. I was too busy. I was too busy. I didn't realize it, Lord, that I was supposed to be busy. And it's going to be a very sad time. And the Bible says that God will wipe away all tears. I think there's going to be a lot of tears in heaven. Because <coughs> what we bring into heaven are the only things that are going to last. The rest of the stuff is going to be left behind. So the question is, what are you going to carry into eternity with you? And if, what have we got to show? Oh, Lord, I had a wonderful career. I accumulated a million dollars. I had so many friends on Instagram. I was driving a really good car. Lord, I was, you know, everyone liked me. No, you can't carry any of that into heaven because none of that's going to make, going to mean anything. Turn to First Peter chapter two with me for a moment. First Peter chapter two. Because Peter gives us some clear instructions about how we are to live and what type of perspective we are to have as believers, and he does this very well. That's why I got um, you guys to read First Peter chapter two. This morning, but I want to just look at verse 11 and 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he says, Dearly beloved, so he's speaking to other believers, he's speaking to people that are beloved in Christ. Dearly beloved, you are loved. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation, that is your conduct, your life, the way the way you, you live. Honest among the Gentiles, among the people of this world, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they may by your good works, which they shall behold. In other words, the things they see you do glorify God in the day of visitation. We can say a whole lot of stuff. We can go, go around saying, oh, I believe in, you know, uh, life is precious from, the, from conception to, you know, to death and all those types of things. And we can argue all those points, okay? But the question is what they see you do. They'll call you, they'll call you evil anyway because we're going to be saying stuff that they don't agree with. The world is going off in a tangent which is opposite to what we're saying. We're saying we find our truths in the Bible and they're saying they're finding their truth wherever they want to find it. And it's changing by, from year to year and day to day and we're looking at them with horrified looks sometimes. But we have our truth already organised and it's been the same truth from the beginning. And that's the difference between us and the people in this world. But the question is how we look at them and what we do in front of them. Because at the end, what they are going to glorify God about is what you do in front of them. Not what you say. I can say a whole lot of stuff and I can come across looking like, you know, some sort of a guru out there, which is what everyone's looking for. But at the end, God is going to measure us by what we do. question is, will we live, will we make choices and decisions that are with integrity? When I say integrity, I mean, are the decisions we're making in line with what we say we believe? And unfortunately, once again, too many Christians don't live lives of integrity. They live lives different to what they're actually saying they believe. Oh, I believe, I believe that I should love my enemies. Anyone not agree with that? No. 
But yet the first time we are, the first opportunity we get to smack our enemy, we'll take it. Let's live as Jesus told us to live. Not as fools, not as hypocrites, but as wise. And so we have this beautiful picture of Israel who's gone to Egypt and it becomes a picture of the, like the church. We're in this world now. That's a, like a microcosm of what God has done worldwide with us. We are not at home. But we need to understand that we are living among... We are strangers in this place. They're not. We're the strangers here. And you should be a stranger. It should be strange to you. And we should look strange to them. Because when the, when the Israelites presented themselves before Moses, I will guarantee you they knew they weren't Egyptians. By the way they spoke, by the way they dressed, by the way they, what they did, the, man, the manners that they had and the customs they had, they looked different. So my, my challenge to you is to look different. I'm not saying what clothes you wear. What I'm talking about is the things you do should be different to the people in the world. They should be in line with what Christ has told us or how he has told us to live. And we have here clear instructions, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Keep away from those things. The world is full of these things, but just keep away from them because they war against your soul. And then have your conversation honest. Be honest. If you say you believe something, do the same thing in front of them. The goal is to love with such integrity and honesty in what we believe that even though they may call you a loser, a liar, an evil person from now, one day when the Lord comes and judgment is coming on this earth, one day when they stand before him, they're going to have to say, oh, you were right. Yeah, I can see what he did now. And that was you. And that was in line with what you said. So I glorify you for that. Even people who are unsaved are going to have to bow the knee. Get that for a moment. Everyone will eventually bow the knee. Unfortunately, there will be only those, only those who bow the knee in this life will get to walk in the next. So let's look at the response. This is Pharaoh's response to their request. And mind you, Pharaoh had also already approved this thing anyway, in advance. Genesis 47 verse 5 says, And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. Oh, what a beautiful verse. The land of Egypt is open to you. In the best of the land, make thy father and brethren to dwell in the land of Goshen. Let them dwell. And if thou knowest any man of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. Whoa, that's a, that's a huge uh, bonus, isn't it? So just as promised, he says, all right, you, can, you guys can live in the best part of Egypt. Go, go live in Goshen. But in addition to this, if there is any among you that is really good at managing cattle, let me know, because I'm going to make them the managers of my cattle as well. Wow, fantastic opportunity. And so the brothers did their job. They, did, they got a good report. They, they, they walked out all nice and happy. And now they bring in dad. Um, how many of you, when you got your first and second jobs, would have been very happy for dad to come into your workplace and meet your boss? Hey. 
know whether dad and the workplace go well sometimes. Because I think as a, as, a, as a young person who's trying to establish themselves and has a, rela a relationship, obviously, with the people you're working with, to bring dad in and meet your boss may be a bit of a, um, a dangerous thing. You know, dad could come out and say, why don't you pay my son enough money? How come you haven't given him that promotion yet? Well, my son is the best of all of your workers. Wouldn't you love to hear that? Now, sometimes, especially Italian fathers, <laughs> um, they, they speak what's on their heart. Let's put it that way. Okay, they're not too worried about the consequences after. <laughs> now, Joseph has brought his five brothers in. They've done okay. They did it right. Because normally these guys mess up badly. <laughs> so Joseph is thinking, okay, we got, okay, you got, uh, 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 quick, 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 get out of here. Okay, you've done okay. Before you say something else and ruin the whole thing. Now he's bringing his dad, right? And he's bringing his dad, and his, his father's 130 years old, and he's bringing him in front of, in front of Moses here. Um, and Genesis 47.7 uh, then says, And Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh. And I love how this starts. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And that's a, that would have been a, a, a blessing from God. He would have prayed... May the God of Isaac, you know, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, may Jehovah bless you uh, mightily. Isn't that a beautiful thing that he blesses him? He actually recognizes that Pharaoh has been a blessing to his family. And he's blessing Pharaoh, this unbeliever, this, this guy who epitomizes the actual opposite. But he doesn't berate him and say, you know, what are you doing? He actually says, may God bless you. And verse 8 then says, And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old art thou? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob calls his life a pilgrimage. And once again, he's not in his own country. This guy's 130 years old and he's away from his home. You know, even his own, in his own country, he hadn't settled down properly either. His life was literally a pilgrimage. And he first lived in, in Canaan. From there, he moved to Padanaram. Then he sojourned there for a while. And then he came to, to Canaan again. Then for a while, he dwelt at Sukkoth. And then he went to Shechem. And then after that, he went to Hebron. And now he's further away from home than he's ever been pretty much in, in Egypt. And he's 130 years old. And he calls his life evil, which means he's had a whole lot of hard times. I've had a hard life that's been filled with suffering and hardship. And he was absolutely truthful about this. Remember, he's got, guy's got a twin brother and wanted to kill him. He had to run away from his own brother because he wanted to kill him back in Genesis 27. Then he had to go, he loved this, fell in love with this girl, his cousin. And he wanted to marry her. So her dad says, oh, I'll work for seven years for me. And, you know, I'll let you marry my daughter. So the guy works for seven years. Morning till night. 
And then they end up giving him the other one. He's got to work another seven years. So it's 14 years to marry the girl that he loved. 14 years. Now, I know some of you romantic guys out there will say, I'll work for 14 years for my beloved. It's a long time, 14 years. <laughs> the girls are all, the women are all looking at the husband like, would you work for me for 14 years? Darling, you know I would. But he had a difficult life. I mean, he... he he, once he has this really bad relationship with his brother, his brother wanted to kill him. Then he's got, then he's got this love for Rachel. He has to work for 14 years for her. And Laban wasn't a very nice guy. He wasn't a very nice father-in-law. Took advantage of his son-in-law very badly. His daughter was essentially raped by this guy, uh, Dina, I think her name was, raped by this guy called Shechem. Shechem. And then his, his sons, in, in retaliation to that, end up slaughtering all of those guys' family. And he's thinking to himself, mate, can things get worse here? My daughter's been raped. They've gone and killed him and him and all of his family because I'm going to be like a stink in this country. I'm never going to get to relax. They're going to want to come and kill us all over here. So the poor guy hasn't had a break. He's had a difficult life. Then he gets to bury his wife. At Ephra, so he sees the death of his wife, and then, you know, he's at, at Hebron after he sent Joseph out to, you know, to to find his brothers and, and you know, see what they're up to. They come back and they say, "Dad, Joseph's been ripped apart by wild animals," and they bring him his his bloodied jumper, his, his bloodied coat. The guy's had a hard life for twenty years. He thinks his son was ripped apart by wild animals, never found. So he was true. But he was on a pilgrimage. Wasn't comfortable. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were all on a pilgrimage, as he says. And he hadn't reached the, the age of them either. I mean, Abraham was, what, 175? Um, Isaac was a little bit less. But turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11. Because even though they were pilgrims and they understood it, they were looking for a place. They knew that where they were was not the place. Once again, we're looking at this, this concept of strangers and pilgrims. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, and these all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And isn't that true for us? Is that true for you? Let me ask you that question and ask yourself this question. Is this true for you? Do you understand that we're just passing through here and there's a place prepared, a much better country, that is our home, where you can actually relax and be together with your family and you won't have to be moved on and move around and put up with 
a whole lot of stuff that we put up with today. They may have not received the promises and it says they saw them afar off, but let me tell you what you have received. You've received the most important promise. Because the one that was promised from the beginning from Genesis, you and I know who he is. They didn't. They were still waiting for him. They, in some future time, they knew that the Messiah would come to pay for the sins of the entire world, the Lamb of God, the one who would crush the serpent's head, and they hadn't seen him. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know his name, but you do. Because we've seen the promise. And if you're born again, you've received the promise. The promise of Jesus Christ. You see, you may be looking for another country or some other place to dwell. And, but I'll tell you what, if you've received Jesus Christ, you have what you need. You have the most important thing. And I've shared this with you before. I don't care about the streets of gold in heaven, as beautiful as they're going to be. Or the mansions and everything else. They're going to be absolutely beautiful. My heart is to see the one who died for me. Because he's my inheritance. He's the one. And if I can spend more time with him and be with him and see him face to face, that's where my heart is. The patriarchs were waiting for this to come. They knew it was coming and they embraced it, the Bible says. They embraced it with all their heart and they said, yes, we believe it. And so God counts it to them for righteousness, for believing and for having that hope. And he says, don't worry, I'm not ashamed of you, even though the world may have been ashamed of them because they didn't fit into the mold of everyone else here. But he said, I'm not ashamed of you and I'm going to prepare a city for you. We are all going to come and stay. I hope that's true for you today. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. Because Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Abraham being called out to a promised land is a picture of what we've been called out of. So look at verse 10. When Jacob finishes the encounter with Pharaoh the same way that he began it, with another blessing. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Again he blessed him in verse 10 of Genesis 47. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread according to their family. So, so Israel was given the best of the land and not just the best of the land, he was giving them the bread and everything they needed to live. But they weren't even paying for it by the looks of it. He was giving this them to them for free, like manna falling from heaven. You don't pay for it. You just take it. But look at what happened with the rest of Egypt now. Look at verse 13. And it says, And there was no bread in all the land. For the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the, of the famine. And Joseph gathered, look at this, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's hands. So what's going on here? Well, remember, that was selling the... They had accumulated seven years of that 20% of all, the, of all the produce and they were bumper crops. So they were getting like maybe double what they had normally got. So, that, so Joseph had built these massive silos to keep all this stuff in. And now when everyone's crying for, for food, guess what they're doing? They're selling it to people. Just like, the, like, uh, like Joseph's family were coming, they, they came to pay. Now, this tells you how bad it is. There was no more money. People would run out of money. 
So they, they paid all the money to buy the corn. So um, anyone know what the price of a head of lettuce is at the moment? Is it still over $10? It's pretty expensive, isn't it? Things don't change. Because when something is scarce and people need it or want it, it goes up in value. That is true for everything. If I've got two things, if I hold two things in my hand and they, I bought them maybe for $5, but a lot of people want them, guess what? There's going to be people out there who are willing to pay more for them. And so they do. Someone will say, I'll give you 500 And the next guy will say, I'll give you 700 And that's what happens when a commodity like as important as, as grain, when that goes down and people need it to live, they'll do anything. So they're paying. The price of these things keeps on going up because there's less and less of it around. And so it gets to the point where everyone's actually paid all the money. And, and Joseph has collected all the money from all of Egypt and Canaan too. We might lament ourselves because of the price of lettuce. Because of the war in Ukraine at the moment, which supplies about, I think, 30% of the world's grain. Think about that for a moment. Um, the world's wheat, specifically. We may not be that affected. Because I'll tell you what, we've got a lot of extra capacity. When, you, when we buy a hamburger or a loaf of bread and we've got extra supplies here in Australia, we can afford to pay an extra 20 or 30% on top. Right? Because we have that money. We are not at a point where we only have enough money to, to feed ourselves. We spend our money on a whole range of other things, okay? But imagine if you're from a poor country, maybe in some of these African countries, and you live on $2 a day, and you have to feed your family. And the price of that wheat to make that bread for your family goes up 20 or 30%. And you're trying to make ends meet. What do you do? That's the reality for many people in the world. They're living on a few dollars a day and they're trying to feed their family with it. So when the price of bread goes up and the grain goes up internationally, we go, oh, that's not too bad. And meanwhile, there's a, there's a family in Africa or in Bangladesh and these other places over here and the poor person's earning or selling whatever they're selling and trying to make ends meet and that thing goes up by an extra dollar, you can't feed your family. And this is what's happening in Egypt at the moment. People have paid all their money. They've got nothing left. And the most important thing for them to do is to live, simply live. They don't care. The price of grain has gone up higher and higher. And there's none of it left around. And Pharaoh has collected all the money. And so what do we, what do, we do now? The printing presses in, uh, and the coin presses in Egypt and then couldn't keep up with the production. So it literally ran out. And verse 15 says, And when money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, so all those silver coins and brass coins that they had, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. So money is not around anymore. We've got no more money. We can't give you any more money. We can't earn any more money. What do we do? So Joseph said in verse 16, oh, give me your give cattle and I will give you for your cattle if money fail. 
And they brought their cattle unto Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for flocks and for, for cattle of the herds and for the asses. And he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. So for a whole year, people were bringing their livestock to, uh, to Joseph. And Joseph saying, all right, give me two sheep and two sheep worth that much. And this one's going to give me a cow and that's worth that much. And he's collecting all these things. And who's getting all these things? Pharaoh. Pharaoh's collecting all these, all these animals. And in verse 18 it says, When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord how that our money is spent. My, my Lord also hath our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, before uh, both we and our land, by us and our, by us and our land? For bread, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land not be not desolate. So have a look at that. So first of all, what if you're wondering what's happening to Joseph's family at this point? Do you remember what job they had? They were shepherds. They were cattlemen. And do you remember the jobs that they were offered at the beginning? So these guys are all of a sudden get this massive influx of things they have to manage. They're, they're living well. Okay, they've got cattle. They can milk a thousand cows a day if they want. So they, they've got a whole lot of stuff. They've got, they, they probably couldn't work out how to, how to help manage this whole thing as Pharaoh's collecting all these animals. But the people get to a point where they've given their animals now and they've given all their money and now they come to Joseph and they say, we've got nothing left to give you but ourselves and our land. And if you give us some grain, some seed, we can at least grow the stuff in the ground and we're not going to die. And so it says here in verse 20, And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. So he brought people into the cities so he could feed them properly and they would become servants to Pharaoh. But they ended up giving all their land to Pharaoh for him to manage now. So he owned all the land, all the cattle, and even owned them. So what was once independently owned land in Egypt became the possession of one. And he could put them to work in the cities and he could more easily feed and look after them. But the whole land of Egypt became what it was known in the Middle Ages as a serfdom. So a serfdom had a king and the king owned all the land and he essentially owned all the people too. And the people would work that land and they would give a percentage of the land, of the whatever produce they made to the king and the king would protect them and make sure that they were fed and, and, and from time to time he would call on them to actually fight in his army. Egypt was now a similar type of system with the people selling themselves in order to live. I'll tell you what, we should appreciate the democracy we're in today. We should appreciate the freedom that we have today. There are plenty of, you know, there's plenty of opportunity to lament, and we do spend a whole lot of time crying 
But when you go through and look at the history of mankind and the types of uh, governments that people have been under, uh, we are in a very privileged position. And it's a shame if we don't take advantage of this, this time, okay, to make the best of it. Genesis 47.22 then says, Only the land of the priests brought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh, and did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them, wherefore they sold not their land. So, so the priests had their own land that, God, that Pharaoh had given them, and he was feeding them as well. So they weren't affected by this. Maybe Pharaoh didn't want to, didn't want to upset their gods in the whole process. interesting to see the parallel between Pharaoh and God essentially Pharaoh had become God to Egypt he was the, he was the owner of a thousand heads of cattle and all the hills he owned all the hills they were all his everyone and everything was his he had ultimate power over his own people would he be as gracious as God is to us that he makes his sun to shine on the, on the good and the bad and causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Look at verse 23 to 26. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day. I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. It shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh. And four parts shall be your own for seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your households, and for food for your little ones. And they said, That has saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth part, except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. So they set up a system where Pharaoh and Joseph gave them seed, they planted the seed and they gave them bread in the meantime as well. And so whatever produce would come up from that land, they would give 20% to Pharaoh and they'd keep 80% for themselves and they would be able to live off that. Which is an interesting system because it's actually like taxation, isn't it? You pay about the same, type, the same amount in taxation, about 20%. Uh, and that goes to organising armies and roads and all that sort of stuff and whatever else they, they, they do with it, our government does with it. Um, and, and a lot of that is actually, actually help people that are unfortunate, people with disabilities and people that are, you know, that can't work for themselves and pensioners and all that sort of stuff. So there's a taxation system that's set up there. They work, they give 20% to Pharaoh, but they've at least been given the grain to live now and they can work that land. And so that's the system that Pharaoh had set up. But Joseph was instrumental in setting that up. He ultimately, because he worked for Pharaoh, Pharaoh's wealth and power and influence and even he, he, the sight of him in the, in the sight of people actually increased. He became more loved, more powerful than ever before. And that was because and they had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. You're doing well. They didn't have to sell themselves. They didn't have any land to sell. You didn't have to worry about that. They were just passing through anyway. But these guys are multiplying and growing and being blessed. Jacob and his family grew in number and in possessions. How many more years of the, of the famine was there meant to be? About five. And 17 years later, they're still hanging around here. Mm, 
what's going on here? Verse 28 says, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. Joseph and said unto him, I, if now I have found grace in thy sight, he, looked, he says this to his son, if I found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly with, uh, deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt, but I will lie with my fathers and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their bury, burying place. And he said, I will do as thou said. And he said, Swear unto me. And he sware unto him, and Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. And he died. It's interesting that Israel, that, that Jacob, went to Joseph and said, Please promise me. And it was a bit like, you know, when two people make a deal these days, and you shake on it. Okay? And when you shake on it, shaking doesn't mean too much these days. It used to mean more in time past. But when you shake on something, you're making an agreement. That shake actually is uh, an agreement that you've entered into, right? So this is an oath. And so when you put your hand under someone's thigh, you are making an oath to them. And so Jacob asks uh, Joseph, do me, promise me, when I die, I don't want you to bury me here. I, I don't belong here. I want you to bury me with my fathers. I want you to bury me where Isaac and Abraham are buried. And if you're kind to me, and if you're true with me, then you'll do that for me. And Joseph says, yes, I'll do it. And so Jacob, at um, 147 years old, dies there with Joseph. He didn't go to his other sons, if you notice, for this. He didn't go to Judah or Reuben, Joseph and said, Joseph, I need you to do this for me. Why? Because Joseph was the only one really with the wherewithal to be able to do it. With the power. Joseph had the power to be able to do that. These other brothers really couldn't guarantee that for him. Because they'd have to transport his body all the way back to Canaan again. So Joseph made a promise to his father to bring him back to his, to his father's. And Jacob dies on his bed. And Jacob, in a moment, would be with his fathers. He would see his fathers again. Yeah, it might, might have taken a while to bring his body back to, back to Canaan, which is symbolic of him being reunited again with his family after death. But I'll guarantee you one thing. Jacob was in that moment that he bowed his head at the end of his bed. He found himself with his father and with his grandfather again. You see, it was a special place in his bosom. And after 147 years of difficulty and an evil life and being a pilgrim, he was with his dad again. He was with his grandfather again. And he was with his... They were already there. He may have want, been wanted to be buried in the same place as them, but he was seeing them now face to face. But they would only be there for a time. 
until the time when they saw a special person who maybe maybe three days and he would reveal who he was to them and he would tell them guys I know you you believe you held on to those and by faith you've been granted the righteousness of God and you know the one you've been waiting for it's me I'm here and I've died for the sins of the entire world and soon you're going to come with me to be home in heaven not just in this place and he went to this place to share with them what he had done and how God had done it and that would have been three beautiful days together and you know who was with them remember that thief that was dying next to Jesus on, on the cross next to him and he said to that guy today you will be with me in paradise he was there that time too so remember something here we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth and the greatest of our saviour are calling us home so that we can be with him do you have that to look forward to are you looking forward to that today you see Jacob said to Joseph please promise me that you'll bring me home when I die there is only one person and he's made that promise to us already. So the question now is, do you trust him for that? Have you trusted Jesus for his promise to you to bring you home if you Jacob trusted Joseph and Joseph comes through with his promise. But I'll tell you what, Jesus will never fail in any promise that he's made. So my prayer to you is that you have put your